A reading from Isaiah, chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. But here is my servant, the one I uphold, my chosen, who brings me delight. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He won't cry out or shout aloud or make his voice heard in public. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't extinguish a faint wick. But he will surely bring justice. He won't be extinguished or broken until he has established justice in the land. The coastlands await his teaching. God the Lord says, the one who created the heavens, the one who stretched them out, the one who spread out the earth and its offspring, the one who gave breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you for a good reason. I will grasp your hand and guard you and give you as covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to lead the prisoners from prison and those who sit in darkness from the dungeon. I am the Lord, that is my name. I don't hand out my glory to others or my praise to idols. The things announced in the past, look, they've already happened, but I'm declaring new things before they even appear. I tell you about them. Here ends the third reading. Well, now present loving God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together in this space be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, sisters and brothers, peace to you this morning and grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the prophets whose words we have in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible, perhaps the greatest of all is a prophet whose name we don't even know. Uh, this prophet's words are found in the book of Isaiah, but the great Isaiah himself, who wrote the first 39 chapters, uh, died 150 years before the rest of his book was written. An unknown prophet wrote Isaiah 40 and following during Israel's painful exile in Babylon. And scholars call this prophet Second Isaiah or Deutero-Isaiah. And whoever this person may have been, the prophet's words were born out of an, uh, Israel's enormous suffering. The poetry is hauntingly beautiful, and the visions point to God inside that suffering and God's capacity to make something new out of the suffering. This material from what is called Second Isaiah includes four particular poems. They're called the servant songs because they talk about a servant, a new servant, who will come to show Israel and all the nations the very heart of God. Now, from the very beginning, the earliest Christians who lived 500 years after Second Isaiah were struck by how these poems came to life in Jesus of Nazareth. He knew these poems, and he became these poems in a way that no one else has. We can't read these texts and not think of him. 
You just heard Abby read the first of the servant songs from Isaiah 42. In this one, God is the singer. God sings, see, here is my servant. My right hand upholds him and my spirit is on him to bring justice to the nations. Justice is the theme word of the first servant song. It comes up three different times. My servant will bring justice to the nations, will faithfully bring justice, will not be crushed until he's planted justice in the earth. What is justice? I heard a definition years ago, and it stuck with me, that justice is the will of God distributed. Justice is every man, every woman, every child receiving what ought to be and expressing what ought to be. Justice is the will of God distributed. And as we noted a few weeks ago during Advent, our vocabulary contains some soft words and some hard words. There are words that feel like a pillow and there are words that feel like a rock. And I'd venture to say that for most of us, justice is a word like a rock. It's a stern-sounding word. We all know that justice is right, though real justice is still far too rare for too many. But the word feels hard to us, which is probably one of the reasons why we get a little nervous around people appointed to administer justice. I still remember the blue lights in my rearview mirror late one night some years ago in Texas. I happened to be on my way to a week-long silent prayer retreat at a Catholic retreat center some 40 miles from Waco. It was about 10 p.m. on a Sunday night, and I was passing through the tiny town of Moody, tooling along, listening to some music, driving at what I thought was a perfectly reasonable speed when I saw the lights behind me and that pit began forming in my stomach. Turns out I was driving a tad bit fast. I handed my driver's license to the officer and he gave me an initial benefit of the doubt, asked if I was experiencing some kind of medical emergency. I was actually thinking to myself, well, I'm having a heart attack from being pulled over. But I told him, no, I was just not paying attention to my speed. Then he gave me back my license and he said, so what kind of work do you do in Waco? And I said, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> and that got his interest. He leaned in. I said, I'm a pastor of a church and I'm on my way to a prayer meeting or a prayer retreat at Cedar Break in Belton. And immediately, that police officer became a roadside theologian. Don't worry, ma'am, he said in a thick Texas drawl as he handed me my ticket. Speeding's not a sin. It's just against the law. <laughs> Ugh, justice. It's a hard word. Which makes it especially striking that this servant of God in Isaiah, who comes to do justice, bring justice, establish justice, is portrayed here as the kindest, gentlest, tenderest heart. It's as if he knows we're uneasy about justice, and so he makes a point of saying what the servant won't do to us. 
He won't shout, won't scream, won't raise his voice. The preacher may shout, the police officer may shout, the umpire may shout, but the servant will be soft-spoken and gentle. And, says the text, he won't break an already bruised reed, and he won't snuff out a dimly burning wick, which is to say the servant is patient with struggling, and with people who feel like a disappointment, he is amazingly gentle. These two images here are based on things that everyone would have been familiar with in that day. First, a bruised reed. Reeds grow to this day along the rivers in Palestine. Thick, four to, to ten inches high, kind of like bamboo. And there are all kinds of things you can do with a sturdy reed. You can make a walking stick, build a fence, use it as a bat, if there was such a thing as baseball in the first century. But eventually the reed would crack and the fibers would tear and the thing would bend where it's not supposed to bend. So what do you do? You break it into pieces and you cut yourself a new reed and you throw the other one away. Not my servant, says the poem. A bruised reed he will not break. He'll keep it. And a dimly burning wick, you can picture it. Little lamps filled with oil and a little wick made of flax. And maybe the wick sinks too deep in the oil and the flame is nothing but a tiny blue glow that you can barely see by. What do you do? Snuff out the light. Get a new wick. Not my servant, says God. A smoldering wick he will not put out. Just deep kindness portrayed here. I happen to love the New Testament book of Acts. And you can read Acts as a kind of quaint snapshot of the earliest Christian communities. That's one way to read it. But what if we were to read it, especially Acts chapter 2, as the measure of health for any community? how they loved one another, or that there was nobody in need in that community, for example. But where Acts 2 shimmers most for me is the part where they say, and awe came upon everyone. What if the true measure of our compassion has mostly to do with our ability to stand in awe of the things that people are carrying inside of them? rather than standing in judgment of how they carry it. When we lived in Atlanta, I facilitated a group at a residential treatment center for women recovering from drug and alcohol addiction. And the center called it Spirituality Hour. We met once a month on Monday nights in a small, no-frills room illuminated by a few mismatched lamps and a single 60-watt light bulb overhead. And the walls were adorned with fraying, inspirational posters, one day at a time. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. God grant me serenity, that kind of thing. But I was with them for several years, and the women were as varied as the assorted chairs they sat in, 
old and young, black and white, educated and barely literate, wealthy and just scraping by. The one thing they all had in common, and this is why I loved Spirituality Hour so much, is that every woman in that circle had hit her own personal bottom and knew it. Every one of them wore their truth like a life preserver. I haven't had a sober birthday since I was 12, said Carol, a grandmother of three. I traded my mother's wedding ring for a 10-bag bundle of heroin, said Tanita, not yet 20. I left my kids alone during a four-day bender, said Eve, wiping her eyes. When Child Protective Services took them away, I wanted to kill myself. But even more than I wanted to kill myself, I wanted another drink. What if the true measure of our compassion is our ability to stand in awe of the things people carry rather than judgment in how they carry it? Every life in that circle was a bruised reed, a smoldering wick, including the pastor who led them. Different bruises, same pain. A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not put out. Can you think of a better picture of how Jesus dealt with people who were half ruined? His world, like our world, was full of fast, hard judgments. People who were themselves sputtering lamps appointed themselves as judge and jury. She's a wreck, toss her away. He's a failure, put him out. We don't say these kinds of things out loud, usually. We just silently measure each other and quietly choose who doesn't matter all that much. And that really is enough to break some who are already bruised, to extinguish what little light some have left. But Jesus never met a reject. He never saw an unredeemable life. He absolutely saw how bent and full of sin a human soul can become. He had no illusions about any of that. He sees the heartbreaking difference between what a person might have been and what a person has become. But his eyes are always focused on what might be salvaged in a life. His justice is characterized by a remarkable patience with us who are weak. God understands the weight that bruises the reed. And God understands the wind that overwhelms the light. God's justice always sees more of what's left than of what's lost. And the name of God's justice is mercy. This is a gentle justice. You and I are on the receiving end of an astonishing patience with us that calls us to be more patient with each other. And whenever we happen to be in the presence of someone like that, we know there is something of God deep inside of them. Over the holidays, our family went to see A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, in which Tom Hanks plays the part of the beloved Mr. Rogers, 
And the movie is based on the real-life friendship between Mr. Rogers and a journalist whose name in the movie is Lloyd Vogel. Vogel, played by the actor Matthew Rees, is a cynical, jaded magazine writer with a reputation for skewering the people he interviews. And Vogel has just become a new father and is having serious issues with his own father when he's given the assignment of writing a profile piece on Fred Rogers, the nicest man in the world. Mr. Rogers takes an unexpected interest in the half-ruined Vogel. They form a friendship, and slowly over time, Rogers' unwavering kindness and hopefulness infiltrates the writer's rock-like heart. And Vogel begins to see for himself the husband and father and son he longs to be inside. And at one point in the movie, Vogel says to Fred Rogers, you love people like me. Mr. Rogers says, who are people like you? And Vogel says, broken people. In December, the real-life journalist, Tom Junod, wrote a piece for The Atlantic about the movie and about his real-life friendship with Mr. Rogers, and he concludes the piece with these words. He said, Rogers remains both beloved and somewhat mysterious. He's less of a famous person whom we can come to understand more by watching a movie about him and more like a conduit for some kind of mystical grace. The gentle justice of God, which is to say the mercy of God, the grace of God, ripples out like a pebble in a pond whenever we dare to embody it. And so, brothers and sisters, with God's help, don't break a bruised reed and don't put out a dimly burning light. Follow the one who refused to condemn us or to put us out. The one who has sheltered us and helped us to shine again now sends us back into the world to do the same. Thanks be to God.